What if I told you there was a science behind some of the quirks and idiosyncrasies of some of the world's most successful people? There's a reason that Steve Jobs wore the same black turtleneck every single day. Or what if I told you there was a science-based reason that Jeff Bezos takes his most demanding and high-impact meetings at 10 a.m. and no later? What would you think about that? I would want to see the science. If you're interested in learning more about the science behind how these folks are optimizing their daily decisions, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Breakline Arena. there folks it's your man with the plan kenny vaughn the director of breakline apex and i'm here with two amazing co-hosts ladies would you like to introduce yourselves do i call myself a woman with a plan my name is sophia bodwin i'm a talent recruiter here at breakline and we are here with our ceo and founder we got the breakline boss lady Mm-hmm. Hello, folks. I am delighted to be here with Soap and Kenny. Let's get this thing cracking. So I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm just excited about this episode because as we were listening to Baba Shiv, this this gentleman right here, I mean, you know, it's January. We're thinking about resolutions. I'm trying mm-hmm. to, you know, new year, new you. I'm trying to get my life together. And as I'm listening time. to this talk, there are so many life hacks, so many pearls of wisdom Bethany, I would I would love to hear, were there any particular insights that either from your personal experience, we know you've known Baba for over 15 years. Has there been anything particular that sticks out about him as a person that just mm-hmm. resonates that you want to share with our listeners before we dive into this episode? Yes. I mean, Baba is effervescent. He is so uplifting. He has so much warmth. I was just so lucky to work with him closely for years at Stanford. And in everything that he does, Baba's constantly, with this neuroscience underpinning to his work and research, he's constantly asking, is there a healthier way for us to work? Is there a healthier way for us to advance and progress? For example, when we collaborated at Stanford, I don't think I ever had a meeting with Baba where we were sitting at a conference table. I literally (laughs) think every time we got together, it was what Baba would call a talk, where we would go Mm. and walk for miles around the Stanford campus and just kind of hash out whatever the decision was. Come on, man. (laughs) Well, I just, um, I just loved being able to collaborate with him. He's magnetic. His personality is absolutely magnetic. But what's also so interesting is that he's able to boil down these very technical concepts around neuroscience Mm -hmm. into everyday facts and education that anyone anywhere can use to live a healthier life and to build a healthier career. And I just love to share that with the world. It's, it's so healthy and it's so powerful. And one really wonderful thing is it works for every single person everywhere. Everybody. Mm. I love that you shared that because there were so many insights that I picked up. I mean, just from how your diet, how exercise, how Mm -hmm. the time of day that you make a decision, like on the Mm -hmm. biological level, impacts our decision-making process, and there's ways Mm -hmm. that we can kind of hack that. And 
it's 2021, baby. It's time to employ these things. Let's get to it. Let's become our best selves. Look, basically, we're telling y'all Bob about to give y'all that sauce. So (laughs) I'm about to listen to this thing about three, four times myself. Um, Bethany, I don't know about you. Do you think we should dive right in? Let's go for it. Let's do it. Welcome, welcome. You are in for such a treat spending the next hour with truly one of my very favorite people in the entire world, Professor Babas Shiv. We worked together for years at Stanford, and it's really such a delight and a joy for me to have you with us tonight, Baba. So thank you for joining us. And Baba, these folks on the line, they've seen your bio, but I'd love for you to share with us in your own words. You have such an interesting story. You were initially trained as an engineer. You worked in the corporate world before coming to the U.S. for a Ph.D., then you got into neuroscience. Can you share this path that you took with us, all the hard right and hard left turns and how it brought you to where you are today? Hello, everybody. Thanks, Bethany. Yeah, big honor to be here. (laughs) So my journey, if I had to describe it, I was an accidental academic. I was never meant to be an academic. And I truly believe that there are certain, at least in my life, and I'm sure in your lives as well, there are these vectors that intersect that somehow happen. And you can call this as destiny. The one vector was Bethany and I, the vector that intersected when we were at the GSP. And so anyway, that's right, Bethany. So I started my life as an engineer, then worked in the corporate world in sales, primarily because I knew I was extremely shy at that point in time, chronically shy. And I wanted to get rid of the shyness. I knew that'll hurt me in the long haul. And so I need to get rid of it. And what better way to do that is get into sales. And I was in technical selling, got my MBA, And I had no intention of getting into academia. Absolutely no intent. Zero. Nada. And so I was thinking in terms of a corporate world, you know, get into banking, the traditional route at that point in time, what was hot was banking. I'd even gone through the interviews. And then the last quarter I was on campus, my professor, marketing professor, a guy called Professor Labdi Bandari, I'm walking down the courtyard and uh, he pulls me aside. He doesn't normally talk to students. And he kind of asked me uh, this question, he said, aren't you Baba Shiv? I said, yes, sir. Have you ever thought of becoming a professor? And I said, no, sir. And he said, you should. And then he walked away. And I said, what the heck is this now here? And it was in the back of my head. I had no intention of doing that. I already accepted a job offer. And it so happened that within three months after I graduated, unfortunately, Professor Labdi Bandari died in an air crash. There was a flight into Ahmedabad, which is where I did my MBA. He died in an air crash and then it hit me. I said, I recalled what he had told me. And when I went to the memorial celebration of Professor Bandari, I asked my classmates and people who were there, has he ever told you that you should become a professor? And they all said, no. And I said, maybe there's something going on here. So that was the one vector that hit me. And that's when I started saying, maybe I should investigate. But keep in mind, at that point in time, we didn't have the internet, right? So where would I get all the information? I was already married then. I knew I had to get into a place with low cost of living. So I had to select a few universities. So I went to the United States Council where they have all these brochures from the various universities. And one of them was Duke University. And Duke was, you know, the pictures looked so good. And I said, that's the place I want to go. Not knowing what a PhD entailed, I had absolutely no idea. Honest to God. And by the way, remember that, that I was only 30 years old when I was applying which is very unusual in academia, if you actually think about it, people actually get their tenure by the age of 33. By the age of 36, they're already kind of full professors, right? I mean, this is like very unusual for someone. I'd be starting my PhD at 31. And it's just so happened, if you look at the vectors intersecting, 
was it turned out that my application was read by one of the professors at Duke, a guy called Debu Purohit, and turned out that Debu Purohit was the classmate at Carnegie Mellon of another guy called Kanan Srinivasan, who was my referee when I was applying to university. So Debu says, hey, Kanan says this guy is good. He's got a good background, gold medalist and stuff like that. This guy has to be good. So let's get him. And that's how, that's how I got into, I had no idea. In fact, I still remember the first day I, I went into the Fuqua School of Business, my to-be advisor, Jim Batman, who was also the PhD director, comes down to the PhD study area, sits in front of me and he says, okay, so are you behavioral or are you quant? And I'm looking at him with a blank face. What are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, okay, you know what? The curriculum is going to be very different. You have to decide. And it turned out that was one of the best decisions that I made because at that point in time, Duke University and a few other schools like Stanford, Berkeley, and Cornell were, was at the epicenter of an emerging field of research that is today called behavioral economics. So it was being at the right time, at the right place. And my advisor, Jim Bettman, had gotten into the study of emotion and that's where I got into the bandwagon very early on. And I did my pioneering work, not considered by me, but by the field, pioneering work in the role of emotion in decision-making. And then I knew that the next wave of research is going to come from the brain sciences. I scanned the horizon. I had offers coming from Berkeley. These were assistant professor offers coming from Berkeley, Wharton, Chicago, et cetera. I turned all of them down to go to the University of Iowa because I wanted to get into the brain sciences. I got my tenure at, at Iowa in three years and... Uh, then started doing work in the neurosciences. There was a gentleman called Antonio Damasio out there. So again, see the vectors intersecting out here. Antonio Damasio took a liking for me and that's how I got into the neurosciences. And then Stanford came after me informally, of course, you know how it works in academia, informal channel. They came after me in 99 and said, would you be willing to come over here to Stanford? I said, well, if I get tenure, I will come because I already had tenure at, uh, at Iowa. And they said, mm, you don't have the track record research-wise to get tenure here, you know that. I said, yeah. So whenever you guys think you're ready, I mean, let me know. And then they came back in 2003, and then again in 2004, and they came with a tenure offer. <laughs> That's how I came to Stanford. Baba, your story, you're describing it as vectors, but it reminds me of that phrase, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. So um, I actually believe in that, yeah. 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 Being, being at the right place at the right, right time and also taking uh, advantage of the opportunities that are given yeah. to us, right? And, yeah. So, Baba, I want to get into some of your research around neuroscience, around the brain and emotion. And I thought we could start with something that you've said in the past, which is that emotions are essential and fundamental for making good decisions. And I wanted to start here because in some ways, this is actually a provocative thing to say. We're all very used to database decision-making, quant-based decision-making, and you're coming and saying, actually, emotions are fundamentally important. Can you talk to us a little bit about those yeah. findings? Sure. It's kind of a provocative and controversial statement. I'm not saying that rationality doesn't matter, and we'll talk more, hopefully we'll talk more about that as we go along. But at the end of the day, if you actually look at the, the human brain, the human brain at the end of the day is no different than an animal's brain when it comes to decision-making, when it comes to behaviors, et cetera, in the sense that whether we like it or not, most of human decisions and behaviors, right? If you ask me to put a number to this based on all the evidence out there, I would conjecture, it's only a conjecture, that something like 90 to 95% of human decisions and behaviors are constantly being shaped non-consciously. Emotional brain systems that we share with other animal species, even important decisions. 
we might think that we're being rational, but at the end of the day, if you pit the emotional brain against the rational brain, most often, not always, there are bound to be exceptions, which we'll talk about later. It is the emotion that is going to win. And in fact, I have this thing about, if you look at all the evidence out there, you'll come at two related conclusions. And that is the rational brain is only a slave to the emotional brain. And what the rational brain is good at is not at being rational. That is not what the rational brain is good at. What the rational brain is good at is at rationalizing what the emotional brain has already decided to do, right? It's a great rationalizer. It constructs all these narratives. And so, yeah, you're talking about data-based decisions, but the data that come in, unless they feed into a narrative that the brain has, and very often they are kind of couched in emotion, the fears, the desires, et cetera, you've got to recognize that if emotion is playing such an important role, when we're designing solutions for leaders, for customers, et cetera, we have to recognize the fact that the emotional brain has such a profound impact on human decisions and human behaviors. Mm-hmm. And Baba, I want to unpack this a little bit further. I was at Stanford for 10 years and I left about five years ago. And when I was there, Baba was in the process of developing and testing something that he calls the X framework and it's and associated to mindsets. I was really fascinated by this framework and continue to be fascinated by it. Baba would love for you to share this framework with us and also how we can leverage our knowledge of it in our day-to-day professional lives. Oh, absolutely. So basically the story behind the framework, there's a science behind this, is that the neuroscientists already knew that there must be two distinct circuitries. They used to call it the fear circuitry and the desire circuitry. Okay. And it was in around at the end of 2008, 2009, there was a piece of work that came out from a Japanese scientist, neuroscientist, Hikosawa, who for the first time kind of brought these things together that yes, there is an area in the brain that determines whether people are in the fear circuitry or the desire circuitry. I don't like using the term fear and desire. I like to use the word terms type one and type two, right? The mindsets. The mindset being that type one is a, if you think about statistics as a fear of failure, right? I mean, type one error in statistics is a fear of making a mistake or fear of failure. Now that is also a mindset that can prevail at the level of the individual, can prevail at the level of organizations, even at the level of countries, where failure is not tolerated, failure is ridiculed, failure is sometimes even punished, right? So this is a risk-averse mindset, not just a fear mindset, it's a risk-averse mindset or a failure avoidance mindset. The other one is the type two error in statistics, right? In type two error, it's not a fear of making a mistake, it's a fear of missing out on opportunities. And at the end of the day, it is not a fear of missing out, it is actually a desire for new opportunities. That's why I call it a desire and fear circuit, where Failure in the type two mindset uh, is not painful for the brain. It's not shameful for the brain as it is in the type one mindset, because what the brain will do in the type two mindset is that it will reframe failure as a challenge. It will do it very spontaneously. And the brain likes to have challenges in the type two mindset. So I'm sure some of you have played games out there, you know, card games or Sudoku and stuff like that. And you kind of make an attempt and you fail, but you don't, you don't kind of get frustrated and walk away. It's just say, man, that's interesting. Okay, let me try again. Let me try again. Because what the brain has done is framed that as a challenge rather than as a failure. So you can see how this will map onto the framework. So let me kind of change the background. So at least uh, you'll, you'll kind of get a sense of what this framework is about. 
Hey y'all, Kenny and Soap, real quick, we just want to jump in here because we actually recorded this over Zoom and we want to make sure that y'all have the necessary context here. So Baba changed his background to his X framework and it's essentially a graph with the X axis as physiological arousal from high to low and then the Y axis is pleasantness and um or we we could just if you google baba shiv x framework it is one of the first things to come up tremendously helpful in understanding this episode uh plus really cool to just check out so uh baba shiv x framework and it should do the trick for you awesome back to the episode so basically what this says is that this is nothing but the circumflex model of emotion right any emotion will have these two dimensions one is the pleasantness dimension and the physiological arousal dimension. And then you can categorize these emotions into stressors like fear, anxiety, frustration, annoyances, et cetera. Those are stressors. And then you have the feeling comfortable, feeling comfort, right? And then you have boredom and you have the excitement. Excitement can come from discovery, novelty, curiosity, all that will be in the excitement part. And turns out that the way the emotional brain is geared to behave at any given point in time, at a very instinctive level, very instinctive level, the rational brain doesn't have to come into the picture very often. And if it does come in, it'll simply rationalize, is along these two pathways. Uh, one is the type one pathway, which is the stress to comfort pathway, that are shaped by two chemicals. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about these chemicals because they have a profound impact on the way we live, the decisions we make, the behaviors we engage in, etc. One of them is serotonin. Serotonin is a calming chemical, right? So if you had, you know, if you had a meal and you had protein, especially in the meal, within about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, you would experience this feeling of calmness. It's not a feeling of, of this drowsiness that will come from a carb or a sugar overload. It's a feeling of calmness. Okay? That is serotonin. That is the calming chemical. Because all proteins, be it animal or vegetable proteins, have a precursor to serotonin, which is the amino acid tryptophan. And we'll talk more about that, why diet is so important. The other chemical is cortisol. And cortisol is a stress chemical, right? And the way you should think about this is serotonin divided by cortisol. In the sense that any factor that increases the numerator serotonin, any factor that decreases the denominator cortisol, will ensure that the brain is more towards the comfort end of the pathway. And when the brain gets into a comfort end of the pathway, it is more likely to switch. So think of these two circuitries as a relay race that is going on, where the baton is getting passed from one circuitry to the other. When the brain reaches a stable level of comfort is when the baton will get passed on to the type 2 circuitry. And this is when the brain will start cycling between boredom and excitement, boredom and excitement. And that circuitry has another neurochemical marker, which is the neuromodulator dopamine, which is the excitatory chemical. Now, this is a very simple yet powerful framework because you can see what are the implications of this framework when we start having a discussion about what are the applications for leadership, et cetera. So I just want to lay out the framework itself. And of course, we'll dig deeper into what are the factors that will influence serotonin? What are the factors that influence cortisol? How can you manage these things? Because all these things are happening instinctively. You cannot fight the instinct with the rational side. First of all, you don't even know that uh, because a lot of these emotions are happening sub rosa. They're happening unconsciously. We don't even know that we are, the brain is experiencing these. So the better way to do is to manage these chemicals so that first and foremost, you're already resilient to kind of fear, stress, etc. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. 
Yes, Baba, I want to get into that. Can you explain a little bit more? You've talked about how the brain has emotional neurocircuitry and cognitive neurocircuitry, both influence decision-making, but when the brain is faced with a decision dilemma, the emotional brain wins. There's a lot of research that has shown there are two things about decision-making. One is making the decision, and the second is sticking to the decision, so being decisive. You don't want to have a leader who makes decisions and keep going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And there's a lot of research that shows that if you are purely rational in trying to make the decision and you completely get rid of the emotional side, how do we know that? We look at brain damage patients. Patient, that's what I did when I was at the University of Iowa, where these are people who have suffered a stroke. It destroys areas of the emotional circuitry. And then we have another patient control group, which all, they also suffered a stroke but didn't remove aspects of their emotional circuitry. And what you'll observe in these people is that they don't have the emotional brain at all. You know, it's completely gone. They will be un they'll be able to make decisions, but they'll be unable to stick to their decisions. They won't be decisive. They'll go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, and therefore, for you to emerge from your decision feeling very decisive, feeling very confident, it is emotion that plays a critical role in giving rise to that outcome, right? Now, keep in mind that the rational brain has a role to play because when you think about making decisions, you don't want to fall prey to emotional biases up front because keep in mind, emotion also completely result in a whole host of biases, especially in the due diligence stage. When you're making this, this due diligence, you're getting information out there, you're evaluating the very options, you really want to keep emotion out of the picture as much as possible. And that's why you've got to bring in the rational brain out there. Don't get swept away by the emotion during that phase. And if possible, if, if you are part of that decision, you're bound to fall prey to emotion, the fears, desires, et cetera. Have someone else, maybe a good friend of yours, who's not as invested in that decision to do the due diligence for you. You know, just the usual kind of things that I talk about. What are the pros? What are the cons? Get all the information out there. And then once you're done the due diligence out there, in general, what is going to happen is that there won't be a clear winner. That's the nature of the game in often, right? You'll have one option that is good on certain dimensions, bad on certain other dimensions. That is where you have to start bringing an emotion to the picture. Assuming, of course, that both these options have passed the threshold in your due diligence process, right? You've got to set some kind of benchmark to say, if it goes above this benchmark or threshold, as I call it, it is okay to use any kind of rule that you advocate as use emotion. And the most effective way to do that, just from a practical sense, is if you're faced with a very important decision that has got huge consequences for you, for your job, for your personal, professional lives, etc. What you do is that you've done the due diligence. Hopefully you have had someone else do the due diligence for you so that your emotion is not biased. What you do is take the weekend off. Allow the information to percolate. Set a deadline. Deadlines are very critical. If you don't set a deadline, remember I talked about the X framework and you talk about comfort. What are the things that bring about comfort? Familiarity, trust, validation, low risk options, and very often no risk options. And what is a no-risk option in any decision? A state of indecision. So what will happen is that if you don't set a deadline out there, your brain will keep procrastinating. Procrastinating is very comforting for the brain. So kick the can down the road. Let's deal with it later. So you set a deadline. Monday, I'm going to call the whoever it is and make a commitment that I'm going to announce my decision. Take the weekend off. 
allow the information to percolate, you wake up on Monday morning, your gut will tell you which way to go. And if your gut is still not telling you which way to go, do the following. Take a fair coin. Heads is option A, tails is option B. Toss the coin. It's not about the outcome, but listen to your gut when that is happening. When you toss the coin, listen to your gut. Your gut will tell you, I want A, I want A. Grab that. You reinforce that emotion. How do you reinforce this? You create a narrative around it to say that this decision is going to be the best decision I've ever made. And if possible, have social proof as well. So remember, the most important thing about this framework is the brain is switching from type one to type two, and that is determined by the level of comfort, right? When it's a state of comfort, it'll move to the type two mindset. Keep in mind, if the brain is not in a stable level of comfort, the brain will be unable to switch to the type two mindset. It'll literally shut off the dopamine circuitry because it makes a lot of sense, evolutionary sense, because the animal in the wild is experiencing stress it is signaling to the animal's brain danger. One of the major objectives of the animal's brain, including the human brain, is to keep us safe. The whole notion of loss aversion, it will simply shut off the dopamine circuitry until the danger has passed. And until the danger has passed, it will keep trying to go into a state of comfort. And most often what it will do is kick the can down the road. Just keep rationalizing, saying that, oh yeah, I'll deal with it later, I'll deal with it later, and so on. So one thing is deadlines. Second thing is due diligence process, use your rational brain. If possible, try to get someone else to do it. Convert everything to numbers. Numbers tend to force the brain to become more cognitive and rational. But then to get out of it and have the deadline and then invoke all emotion that supports a winner. And that winner can be determined by your gut. Just decide based on your gut and more. Mm-hmm. Baba, this is so interesting. And Jeremy Mahatha had a question about this, which I think you've partially answered, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there some identified evolutionary biological advantage of having the rational mind be submissive to the emotional one? And I think you're talking about the protection against indecision as part of that. Right. I mean, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, as you know, but I have a speculation that we must have evolved to have emotion play a critical role. So think about the following. I mentioned that to be decisive after making a decision, emotion is crucial. If there's no emotion out there, the person will go back and forth and back and forth, like those patients. For those of you who are interested, you can look up Phineas Gage. It's a classic story in neuroscience. Said in the mid 1800s, suffered a damage to his emotional brain. And let's see what happens after he, suffer, he recovers. He's simply unable to stick to a decision. He goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So. From an evolutionary perspective, here's a scenario. Imagine that I'm a caveman. I'm being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. Is the situation important for me to survive? Absolutely, yes. Now, I'm running away from the beast. I come to a fork in the road. I cannot be doing probability calculations and all that. I have to rely on my gut. And I have to choose a course of action and be confident about that course of action because if I hesitate, the animal can eat me alive. Mm-hmm. So I think what evolution has done is allowed the humans in the decision-making process to emerge from decisions feeling confident, feeling decisive, sticking to the decision, sticking to a course of action. Of course, being cognizant of the situation as it goes. If I've taken a course of action, that I'm a caveman, I've taken this path right now because my gut told me to, but I realized that that was a mistake. The brain will learn that. From an emotional perspective, it will instinctively learn that. 
And then next time it goes into the same situation, the emotion non-consciously will kick in, will, the gut will tell me, don't go there, go here. That's how the brain learns. In fact, we're all talking about machine learning right now. We're all talking about human-centered machine learning and AI, et cetera. What AI and machine learning is bringing to the table for the first time is mimicking how the brain works. By kind of getting these small cues, was it a failure, was it a thing? It learns and all the learning is happening in the emotional side. And it is happening when we sleep, during our REM sleep. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk more about sleep mm-hmm. as a role of sleep, but sleep is very crucial for that learning to take place. I mean, you know the importance of sleep. And, but you know, this is crazy because I, I talk to senior executives and Silicon Valley is full of these people who say, I only sleep for two hours a day. The two hours a day, you are going to be completely wasted. You're not going, first of all, your brain is not going to learn at an instinctive level. The second thing is there are factors that will affect serotonin levels, which we'll talk about momentarily, right? Mm-hmm. You've, got to, you've got to understand that sleep is so very critical. So that's the way I would kind of frame this from an evolutionary perspective. It must have happened because to survive, humans need to be decisive. If you're uncertain all the time, you will be in a very dysfunctional situation. Okay, thank you, Baba, for fleshing out the emotional brain versus the rational brain. And now I want to kind of use it to come back to this discussion about neuromodulators like serotonin and cortisol. And you've said that these neuromodulators actually determine who we are, even to the level of determining who we are in the morning versus who we are in the afternoon, you know, and just really being aware of what what's going on inside of our bodies and our minds and being able to harness that as professionals. Can you talk to us more about what what you mean by that? Absolutely. So going back to this, remember in the type one mindset, at the end of the day, all of us have to be ambidextrous when it comes to making decisions. Agility Agility means that when the situation so demands, you need to be risk averse. You need to be type one. When the situation so demands, you need to be type two. The problem is that, as I mentioned earlier on, if the brain is in a state of stress and not yet reached a stable level of comfort, it will be unable to switch to the type two mindset, which means the individual loses the agility that is required and will be stuck in the risk averse type one mindset. So if you think about the type one mindset or type one circuitry, it has got serotonin in the numerator and cortisol in the denominator. So we've got to think about what are the factors that will systematically influence the numerator and the denominator. So you talked about the time of day has a huge impact. When we wake up in the morning, if you had a good night's rest, your serotonin levels will be at their peak. As the day begins to progress, their serotonin levels will begin to drop, which means the numerator is dropping. What it means is that for an individual or if you're trying to influence someone, the best time to be making that pitch to that person is going to be in the morning, assuming, of course, that person has had a good night's rest, of course, that you pitch in the morning because this is when that person is going to be more open to a type two kind of a mindset because the serotonin levels are naturally very high. The same thing in terms of brainstorming. Creativity requires a type two mindset. So when you do a brainstorming, you want to schedule that in the morning. If you're going to have a pitch meeting and that is important, try to schedule the pitch. And, and I just want to add one more thing and hopefully I will answer the question. And don't take this lightly. One of my colleagues, Jonathan Lavav, did this research on judges in Israel making parole decisions. Prisoners, are they going to be let go on parole or are they going to be back into the slammer? And what he documents is that if the judge is making the decision in the morning or after a meal, but morning is the most important thing, 
there is a 64% likelihood that the prisoner is going to be let go. And then it drops from 64% to 0%. To 0%. I mean, of course, think about the poor prisoner, right? Coming at the wrong time, that's a kind of thing. But so at the end of the day, what they have done based on this research, such an impact it had is that they changed the protocol for the judges that between hearings, you've got to take a nap or you've got to take, do some meditation and we can talk about that. You might want to have something in your diet, uh, eat something, have some snack between hearings so that each prisoner has got roughly the same chance of being let go. Wait, so Baba, what this means is, A, if we need to be sort of creative and team-based and high energy, we want to schedule all of that in the morning as professionals. And if we need to influence someone to make a bigger decision with bigger ramifications, we also want to schedule those types of conversations in the morning. Interesting. Because we're all willing to take more risk Correct. in the morning. Correct. Because we are willing to take more risk and chances. Or that also applies, by the way, to new behaviors. So mm-hmm. if, if an individual wants to adopt a new behavior as a process of developing a new good habit out there, you want to be en- engaged in a new behavior in the morning or preferably over the weekends, but generally in weekends, we kind of, that's when we kind of, you know, uh, get in general kind of sleeping in. We kind of tend to recover some bit of the sleep debt that we have incurred over the week. Because in the morning, I have serotonin levels that are high, which means I'm comfortable, which means I have the flexibility to switch into that type two that's mindset right. that's driven by excitement. That's right. Viewing risk as excitement, sort of the Sudoku that's risk that you talked that's about. Right. Okay, that's really right. That's really interesting. That's right. That's right. It, it, viewing risk as being exciting because risk is more seen as a challenge and how can I deal yes. with challenge rather than kicking the can down the road. Yes, yes, exactly. And you have found that it's not just sleep that influences these levels of the neuromodulators. Yeah, and the time of day, apart from time of day, age makes a big difference. So as we grow older, the numerator serotonin levels are fairly stable. You hit a particular age, there's a dramatic drop in the numerator serotonin. And that age is roughly 50. We don't know why. We don't know why. It just must be nature's way of saying, you're done. Move on. <laughs> kind of thing, right? <laughs> Come in. <laughs> but but there's systematically now what it means is that if someone is about the age of 50, they have to be doing other things with their lives to make sure that the serotonin levels are high, dopamine levels are high, etc. If they're not doing that, it's not only going to affect the decision-making ability, but it's also going to affect it can give rise to other kind of, now this framework is not about mental disorders, but has ramifications for that because if you don't take care of other things like meditation, fitness, yoga, and um, sleep, et cetera, and if, if your serotonin levels are declining, I mean, it, and it's not maintained high levels, you, you fall prey to depression. Mm-hmm. This is age onset depression as it is referred to. Mm-hmm. Second one is age onset Parkinson's disease, which comes from the dopamine side. So while the framework itself originally was not intended for kind of making predictions about disease, it has a profound implication for disease as well. In fact, if anyone is interested in just curious about the science, curiosity means you're type two. So, you know, one of the evenings or, you know, when you had a you know, glass of wine, and I'll talk more about alcohol as well. Alcohol is a double-edged sword in the sense that on one hand, it is good because it will reduce levels of cortisol, but you've got to be very careful because it will disrupt the quality of your sleep. 
Yes. But imagine that you had a glass of wine uh, in the evening and you're interested more about the framework. You won't see the framework anywhere, but do a search for the Habenula, H-A-B-E-N-U-L-A, the Habenula. It is the Habenula, is what the Hikusawa found out, was that it is the Habenula, the neural structure that we share with fruit flies and so on. It is the one that is shifting the brain, switching the brain from the type one to the type two mindset. Hmm. And one of the biggest revolutions in the history of treating depression has happened recently. The last 50 years, it has never happened. Never a, a drug has come out. But the last thing came out was the SSRIs like Prozac. The Habidula, they found out that ketamine, which is a recreational drug, S-ketamine is a derivative of that, will actually hit the Habidula and allow the brain to switch into the type 2 mindset. Because a classic thing of people who are depressed is that the brain is stuck in the type 1 mindset. It's unable to switch to the type 2 mindset. So your friends are having fun. You go to the bar, you're going somewhere, your friends are having fun. You don't seem to be having fun. And that's because of the habanula not allowing the brain to switch. And what S-ketamine does is hits the habanula, allowing it to switch to the type 2 mindset. Interesting. Right? And this is now FDA approved. It is now in the market. S-ketamine is by Johnson & Johnson. Interesting. And you've sort of touched on these a little bit, but we, we've heard about sleep and time of day and age. Will you also talk about the role that fitness, alcohol, which you also mentioned just lightly, and then protein, which you've mentioned, what do those all have in common with effective decision-making and these mindsets? Absolutely. So remember that what I have come to the conclusion for a long time right now is that if not, 90 to 95% of human decisions are behave, uh, and behaviors are being shaped non-consciously by emotional brain systems. You cannot fight that one. It is, you're, it's all unconscious. So you need to be doing other things so that you can kind of be ambidextrous. You can switch mm -hmm. from the type one to type two as the situation so demands. So one of the common thing out here is, if you think about it, if it is the switching being determined by serotonin levels in the numerator and cortisol levels in the denominator, any factor that influences the numerator increases it. Any factor that reduces the denominator of cortisol is going to get the brain into the type 2 mindset. So I mentioned alcohol, for example, right? Alcohol from a chemical basis is one of the fastest ways of reducing the denominator of cortisol. I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating people go and drink. That's not the whole idea here. There are other ways you can do it. For example, just taking a few deep breaths is going to do it, right? That's why meditation, it's not about meditation. It's not about yoga. It's about the slowing down of a breathing. And what that does is that if you regularly practice this, your brain will become a lot more resilient to stress, which means less of the denominator cortisol, which means the brain can start switching into the type two mindset. And therein comes sleep. Sleep is the same kind of thing. If you think about sleep has got several components to it, light sleep, and then it'll get into the slow wave, deep sleep, and so on. One critical element is what is called deep sleep or restorative sleep. It is called restorative because this is when all the tonic levels of serotonin, dopamine, et cetera, are coming back to normal. They've been used up during the day, you sleep, now they're all getting replenished, right? Now, if you consume alcohol, that's why I said it's a double-edged sword, or you don't get good enough sleep out there and you sacrifice sleep for doing something else and you don't get this deep sleep or restorative sleep, then the brain doesn't have a chance to kind of get these chemicals back to normal, which means that you're going to wake up the next day being stuck in a risk averse type one mindset, losing that agility that is needed to switch from one to the other, right? Mm. Which is precisely why airline pilots 
There is a thing out there that you don't consume alcohol for 12 hours before, right? I mean, that's a critical kind of a thing because you don't want the interference happening in the brain of the brain chemicals. And you don't want a pilot who is only on type one. The person has to be agile, has to be able to make some decisions and not just freak out or kick the can down the road and so on. The person should be able to say, hey, there's a challenge, right? I mean, think about Sully Sullenberger. Remember the classic thing he landed on the Hudson and Tom Hanks enacted the, uh, Captain Sullenberger. See how calm he is. And in one of the interviews, he said, yeah, the one thing that he, is, he kind of considers to be too precious, anything that he does, and I totally agree with him, is get quality sleep, hmm. right? So that is the common element. In the case of sleep, it is on the numerator serotonin side. In the case of fitness, also it's on the serotonin side. We all feel good after a workout. And for a long time, people thought this was because of the release of endorphins in the brain. We know of the endorphin hypothesis. Now, keep in mind that endorphin stands for endogenous morphine. It's a brain's way of dealing with pain in the body. The brain naturally releases these chemicals to deal with pain in the body. For someone to have an endorphin release, they have to be running a half marathon. The body has to be in pain. Or you've got to be having some really spicy chili peppers right? Your mouth is on fire. Endorphins will start getting released. And that's where we get the endorphin high after having this thing. Turns out the reason we feel good after a workout is not about the release of endorphins. In most circumstances, it's because if you get into, let us say you go for a brisk walk for about 10 to 15 minutes, the heart muscles will start releasing a peptide. It's called atrial natriuretic peptide, it's ANP which is a vasodilator, the dilates our blood vessels, makes a lot of sense. If you're kind of engaging in some brisk activity, there needs to be more oxygen flowing to the cells and nutrition and so on. Turns out that ANP is also a precursor to serotonin. And that's why now it has been clinically proven that to treat depression that comes from the serotonin side, physical activity is as effective as taking SSRIs like Prozac. And that is the mechanism behind it. And the third one, of course, is the diet. Don't ignore the comfort aspects of the diet. Everything has to be done in moderation. Unfortunately, we get into the dieting kind of craze. There's one diet here. The brain is craving for comfort, and we all have different comfort foods. Give yourself the license to have a little bit of that. For example, my comfort food is yogurt rice. Now, if there's any Indian out here, especially South Indian out here, you'll know about this. Most Indians will finish their meal with yogurt and rice, okay, that's a yogurt rice. And if I'm traveling, and I'm not doing much of travel now, but if I'm flying to any international destination, the first meal I will have when I land in the destination is yogurt rice. I get, go to a local 7-Eleven, buy some yogurt, I get some rice from somewhere, and then just have that, bring myself into a state of comfort. So give yourself the license for that. That is the denominator cortisol. You want to have that comfort. Then comes the serotonin side will be protein. Protein is the way to kind of do, deal with that. Other one is probiotics. Protein is good quality protein. I'm not saying, you know, meat and stuff like that. If you are vegetarian, if you're vegan, you have a lot of dietary sources of good quality protein, soya protein, etc., whey protein, a lot of options out there. If you consume protein, as I mentioned very early on, within about an hour, hour and a half, the last amino acid that will kind of pass the blood-brain barrier is tryptophan, which is a precursor to serotonin. And so you see the linkage of all that now, the, the importance of sleep, the importance of fitness, 
and importance of diet, all three are linked to serotonin, but food can also, and fitness by the way, can also result in cortisol levels going down because when, you, when you're engaged in a fitness activity, you're breathing more heavily. There's a lot of breathing. It's not shallow breathing. It's deep breathing out there, which will also kind of reduce levels of cortisol. Sleep is the same thing. You're resting out there and like you're not kind of stressed. And so stress levels go down and it'll kind of reduce levels of cortisol. Um, Baba, this is so fascinating. And I want to get to some of the questions from some of the folks who are here, including Zane Stickle. And he's asking, is there a mechanism you recommend for influencing a leader or a decision-making body about getting to make an important decision about moving them into a type two mindset in order to make an important decision? So are you telling us we should influence these leaders by taking them for a run in the morning and then meeting over a high protein breakfast? which may not be feasible all the time. It might be feasible. So one of the things that I do, and when people ask me, Kelby said, of course, this is not in the COVID situation, but when we went in person, people ask me questions like, hey, shall I meet over a cup of coffee? Shall we meet over some lunch or dinner? I'll say, let us meet over a talk. Mm-hmm. Talk on a walk, talk, right? And Baba and I just did talk. this a couple of days ago. Yeah, I yeah, know the talks. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can, you can actually do it with a, with a thing. But Sometimes it's not going to be feasible. Obviously, if you're working in a large organization, there is an important meeting that is coming up. Remember, again, this is where you have to leverage the X framework. You've got to look at what are the factors that will bring about comfort. One is the familiar. One is the tried and trusted. Other one is validation. See how you can weave that into the value proposition. What we often end up doing, and that's what we are taught to do as well, is present rational arguments. But keep in mind, the rational brain accounts for only five to 10% of human decisions. It is important, don't get me wrong. You want the rational brain to rationalize. So you have to provide enough fodder for the rational brain to rationalize. But first and foremost, you've got to play into what the emotional brain is looking for. risk averse type one mindset, the brain is craving for comfort. So you want to weave in the familiar. You want to weave in the tried and trusted. You want to weave in validation. How do you do this? So I'll give you an example. I was teaching an executive program at Stanford. I was talking about this and this lady came up to me and said, after I had done with the session and said, Baba, I'm facing with this problem as we speak. I'm having, it feels like I'm banging my head against the wall. I'm not able to persuade this person to make a decision. The person keeps kicking the can down the road. What do I do? So I said, okay, first of all, set a deadline. I mean, when the person says, let me think about it. You follow that up and say, okay, I mean, I'll give you one day to think about it. Is it okay if I come in tomorrow and kind of, so you set the deadline, so they can't escape now. But then you had to weave in this. So I kind of, we crafted the whole thing. So what she did, super smart woman, what she did was she did a lot of homework. You have to do a lot, a lot of homework. Where do you get that information from? The biggest repertoire of information is with a person's admin. The admin has a lot of information about the person. When does a person take a meal? What does the person do? And so on, get information and so on. And what she did was she, found, she asked the admin, what is something that this person championed, made a decision about that the person is so proud about right now? And the admin said it was this particular initiative that was there. What she did was she found out who was in charge of that initiative, who were the people who, who ran that initiative that was in that person's mind very successful. What she did is approach some of those team members and said, hey, I'm planning to do this. Would you like to be part of my initiative? Hmm. Or at least an advisor to mine. 
And what she does is goes to the boss and says, hey, you know what? Uh, remember that, that project that was very successful? Two people from that team are going to be on this initiative as well. Hmm. You see the familiarity and trust? Mm-hmm. And you're riding on the wave of what the person thinks was the biggest success in the mm-hmm. past. And you're pushing the person to, ah, oh, this is, if, if those two people are there, I can trust that this will go on track. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, the other thing also is that she did was, and this is what I recommend doing in terms of validation is testimonials. Mm-hmm. Here are other people doing this. It is not something, there's other people actually doing this. You're not the first one to do this out here. Now, of course, talk about how you're going to mitigate the risk. I mean, obviously the person is kicking the can down the road because the person sees there's some risk. So you already mitigate the risk with two members from that team, but she also went ahead and said, these are all the milestones. And we will kind of make sure that we're kind of doing all the testing out there, keep coming back to you so that you can get this. We'll talk about one more concept that people might actually be able to adopt right off the bat. And that is called the IKEA effect. The IKEA effect says that whenever the brain feels that it is making an investment in something, the investment could be monetary, the investment could be cognitive, mental, could be physical, et cetera. The, what it is investing in, it will get invested in it. So what you do is that, I have this quote of mine and you can, you can please feel free to kind of use this quote wherever you want, is the following. In the early stages of an idea, you're going to a, your boss with an initiative out there. At the early stages of an idea, if you present a polished prototype, others will only find flaws. If you present a rough prototype, others will see potential. So go to this. That's why staging is so critical. You can't simply go with a, with a flashy kind of PowerPoint with all these numbers out there because that's a polished prototype. Go with the back of the napkin. Hmm. It's only a, a thing. I just want to kind of uh, suggest this to you. And I've come to you for advice. The person who starts providing advice, now your idea will become that person's baby as well. And that's why this famous saying in Silicon Valley, right? If you go to a VC for money, you're only going to get advice. If you go for advice, you're going to get money. Hmm. Baba, this is so fascinating and I see so many different potential applications for this. I want to try to squeeze in a few more questions. There's one from Eric Gonzalez and he says, he's wondering if any of your research has led to conclusions that allow us to be aware of when we're triggered by an emotion versus by rationality before we actually make a firm decision. And I think he, he wants to be able to adjust. If this is clearly just being driven by his emotional brain, he wants to be able to sort of check it, you know, or vice versa. A great question, a great question. So unfortunately we are not aware, but mm-hmm. others can be aware of the emotion that you're experiencing. Because a lot of these emotions that are happening non-consciously get manifested in body language tone of voice, how our eye blink, and so on. Breathing rates begins to change. So I did this work with a, with a large engineering firm in, in the Midwest when I was at the University of Iowa. The CEO had called me and said, you know, you do all this research and on marketing sales, et cetera. I have this sales force here. There are some of these in the sales force who are in the 99th percentage of performance. They perform 99 percentile year after year after year. You change that territory, no problem right? 
And, and I want you to compare them with the 50th percentile. And I said, listen, since I'm here doing this research, let's also have a 90th percentile. So kind of have a thing. But that's not that important. One thing that we came on, we tried through in a whole host of variables, whole host of variables. What these people who are in the 99th percentile were good at was two things. Number one, they are masters at mimicry. So what is called mirroring? If people are into neuro-linguistic programming, it's called mirroring. Now, if this has to come naturally, I don't want people running off and trying mirroring and thing because it'll backfire. You gotta be careful because it has, it's very kind of innate. And the second thing they're very good at is recognizing emotion from the body language and faces. They're masters of that. And the surprising, most surprising part of that research was that these people in the 99 percentile, almost all of them were introverts. Because huh. we think salespeople are extroverts. No, introverts are people who are constantly watching the other person for signals. Is it appropriate for me to say something? Is the, is the thing okay? What are the tone in the boardroom? I can sense anger. I can sense some resentment. How do I deal? They are masters at that, right? So the, the, the thing is that technology is going to come in. It's going to come in. So watch out for now, as we start moving to a technology where we may not be aware of our own emotion, but we'll probably be aware of other people's emotion through facial hmm. kind of musculature. There are a lot of very robust AI program things can get facial recognition and quickly kind of in real time, be able to say what emotion you're facing. And they're decently accurate today. I would say about 60% accurate, not yet 100%, but they're getting there. Interesting, Baba. Okay, I have another question from Andrew Waddell, and he says, hello, Baba, from a fellow Fuqua grad. Oh, Andrew. Yes. Blue devils. Yes. He says, and I, I think this is a fascinating question. He says, I'm curious, to what extent could we utilize your research to address and mitigate our social media bubbles? And I was interested in this as well, Baba, when I was listening to you talk about how to mitigate risk by kind of bringing the familiar and the known into that decision. Well, when people are unfamiliar or unknown, I think it kind of leads to some of these gaps that we're seeing both in social media, but also in our companies and in our teams. So curious to, to see how you'd answer Andrew's question. Have you had findings in your research that we could use to address and mitigate our social media bubbles or even more broadly when it comes to diversity and inclusion? Oh, oh man, I could go on and on and on and on on that one. So, so remember I said that in the framework, going back to the framework, what I didn't mention is that very often it is not the personality of the individual that will determine the mindset. Personality only accounts for about five to seven percent variation in the data anyway, okay? Hmm. Most of it is a context. And for humans, very often it is the social norms and values associated with the context. Hmm. It's the social norms and values that will say, if I engage in this behavior, am I going to be punished or am I going to be rewarded? Hmm. Now, inherently, humans are also tribal in nature. You've got to understand that. And when there is pressure, stress that comes in, the first tendency is to go in for members of the same tribe. Yes. You want to listen to people from your same tribe. Now, unfortunately, the politicians have figured that out. So what I do if I'm a politician is invoke fear. And then the tribal instincts will follow. If I'm, you're fearful, then you kind of vote Republican, you vote Democrat, right? Now, what are the solution to this? That is... So crucial a question, Andrew, and I'm glad you asked this. I don't have 
the magic thing? It is a multi-million dollar question. If you look at people who are much more open, who are not in their own bubbles and so on, one thing you see is that they have a vast array of interests and sometimes it goes beyond their comfort zone. Like if from a political kind of thing, I'm a kind of a socially a kind of a liberal, but you know, fiscally I'm conservative. So you don't know where I fall out here. And depending on where things go, I can kind of think, but I always reach out to people on the other side. I want to have a conversation. I go into a bar and I find someone wearing a, MAGA hat or something like that, that's okay for me. I mean, I'll go and have a conversation. That's nothing about, I want to learn from you. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll give my, it's not a fight that's taking place because I get this understanding of where that person is coming from. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself this more fundamental question. How many of you in your network think like you? Mm-hmm. If everyone thinks like you, then you are in your own social bubble. And that's where you'll gravitate towards when stress comes in. You want to have a network where people have other kind of viewpoints. And one of the biggest kind of things that I have enjoyed about being in academia is exactly that, is that you can kind of walk across with completely different viewpoints and you can challenge them, but you're learning along the way. You learn, at the end of the day, you're learning, why is that person coming from that? But why is that person saying what he or she is saying? Baba, it also strikes me that this is where that concept of allyship, I think, is so important. And I'll give you just a quick example from Breakline. When we were first getting started, one of the questions that we heard most often when we reached out directly to veterans was, is this a scam? Because Breakline sounded like it was too good to be true. So we had to rely on our vets to be our allies to help us Right. You know, and, and be ambassadors for our work. And I think we all can play that role. We can all play that allyship role to establish that trust, that sense of familiarity, which we need to be in the right mindset to be able to take that bigger leap. And that's the beauty of what you're doing, Bethany, at the end of the day is, you know, first of all, what you're doing is just amazing, right? I mean, any, every time, by the way, when Bethany calls me up and she says, will you give a talk? She's so apologetic. And I'll say, Bethany, don't even do that. I'm going to do it. Okay. Because of what she, the journey that she is on and the team is on. But also the important thing is not about the learnings from people like me, but it's the community the people you can reach out to if you have an issue out there, mm-hmm. the people that you can just have a conversation with, getting different viewpoints to answer your question. And, and I think what Breakline's biggest kind of strength, I believe, is, is not just in all the content and stuff like that, but is building this deep community out there who are going to help one another and just pay it forward. I mean, there's no expectation. There's good communities where there's no expectation of, it's not transactional, it's relational. Mm-hmm. But people have benefited from being at Breakline, have benefited someone else. They're going to pay it forward at some point in time. And then it becomes a virtuous cycle. You can very easily scale the idea. Baba, I know we're at time. And I just want to thank you on behalf of our entire community here tonight. Thank you for spending this evening with us. Such a pleasure to be with you over the last hour. Really appreciate it, Baba. Oh, thank you so much. Phil, if there are any more questions that I couldn't answer, I mean, some of you can just curate that as an across. Happy to kind of send answers. Will do, Baba. Thank you so much. Thanks to the Breakline community for being here. We'll see all of you soon. Thanks so much. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, Baba. Good night. Well, I'll tell you what, folks. I'm just so thankful that you hung around in there for us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. So if you out there, if you are out there in this this conversation was of any value to you if you haven't already done so we'd like to ask you to do one of three things like 
subscribe or follow the Breakline Arena on your favorite streaming platform. If you even have a moment to review uh, the show, we would absolutely love it. It helps us get our message out there. And most importantly, we just love to, to keep this conversation going with you. So once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn. I'm the director of Breakline Apex. If you want to learn more about our organization, you can visit us at breakline.org. Thank you guys for joining us, signing off. This is Sophia Bodwin, talent recruiter here at Breakline, and we will see you guys next Tuesday. Mm-hmm.